Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send the Holy Spirit to us now so that we understand your word and so that we fear you and turn to you as we should. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week when we began studying the book of Joel together, we saw the judgment of God upon the Israelites. We saw the great destruction that God was bringing upon the people of Israel. How did he bring destruction upon them? Well, it was with this plague of locusts that was described in chapter 1, but even here we see described in chapter 2, uh, particularly the gripping passage in, uh, of Scripture about it is in verses 6 of chapter 2 and following, where you see this army of locusts marching along. No defence can stop them. They come in the windows. Uh, they, they, uh, like, uh, they blacken out the, the sky. Uh, the sun and moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine. Uh, gripping language that is to describe this terrible plague of locusts that had come upon the land of Israel. And so what does Joel encourage the people to do in light of the destruction of this, the locust spring, that they would destroy all the food that was available in the land? Well, he tells them to repent, to cry out to the Lord their God and repent. And we see that in verse 14. Verse 14, he says, declare, uh, chapter 1, sorry, chapter 1, verse 14, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord. And we see in verse 12 of chapter 2 as well, even now declares the Lord, return to me, repent. That's what repentance means, to return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Joel encourages the people of Israel to repent. Repentance is that change of mind from going one way, from sinning to turning to God and his ways, from turning from wrong to right. That's what repentance is. But I think as we look at repentance this morning, and that's the way I want to focus on this morning, the subject of repentance, because it's such an important theme here in the book of Joel as we look at it now, I want to help us to understand from the prophet Joel what a repentant person looks like. As we examine ourselves to see whether we are truly repentant, it's important to see what a repentant person looks like. How is repentance manifested in someone? How is it manifested in them, even in their outward look, how they look outwardly? And we see uh, four things, at least, here in the text that show what repentance looks like, how it uh, manifests itself outwardly in the repentant person. And one of the first things that we see is that the person puts on sackcloth. In verse 13 of chapter 1 of Joel, put on sackcloth, O priests, and mourn, wail you who minister before the altar. The repentant person puts on sackcloth. And we see this again and again throughout Scripture, even into the New Testament. That passage that we had read for us before from Luke chapter 10, verse 13, where the Lord Jesus himself is speaking and he says, If his miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they, the people living in Tyre and Sidon, what would they have done? They would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. The repentant person is someone who doesn't con isn't concerned about wearing beautiful clothing, being well-dressed, isn't even concerned about whether they are clean or not. In fact, they go down into the ashes to show their uncleanness. And this is what we see in Joel chapter 1 and Joel chapter 2. But how else might we see that someone is repentant, that they are truly repentant? Well, the Apostle Joel tells us that, that people will fast from food, that they will neglect food 
as they repent. And we see this again and again in this passage. In fact, I was actually looking at whether I would preach a whole sermon on the subject of fasting because it's so prominent in these chapters that are before us. But we see that they're a sign of repentance, the fasting from food. Verse 14 of chapter 1, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly. And then over into chapter 2, verse 12, even now declares the Lord, return to me, repent with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. And then in chapter 2, verse 15, turn over the page, it says, blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly. When someone is repentant, they often will fast from food. How else is repentance manifested according to the prophet Joel? Well, it's with a crying out to the Lord. If someone is repentant, then they show that they are crying out to the Lord. And we see this in chapter 1, verse 14. Declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. If someone is repentant, there's someone who comes to God in prayer. They're crying out to God. And we see it in verse 19 as well. To you, O Lord, I call. To you, O Lord, I call. So someone who's repentant, what do they look like? Well, they look like someone who is not well-dressed, who doesn't care about how they look. They're someone who is fasting from food. They're no longer eating. They're crying out to the Lord. And then I think there's a fourth thing that we can learn from the prophet Joel as to what a repentant person looks like outwardly. They have a sad face. They have a sad face. And we see that in chapter 2, verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. If someone is repentant, they are sad. They are not bright and chirpy and happy and with a smile on their face. Instead, they are people who are mourning. They are weeping. They are crying. They have a sad face. Now, why does repentance manifest itself in these ways? Why does this show that someone is turning to God by the way that they are badly dressed, poorly dressed, that they're fasting from food, that they're crying out to the Lord, that they have a sad face and they may even have tears on their face? Well, when do we see such responses in someone normally? When would we see these kinds of things happening at other times in someone's life? Well, such things naturally happen in the times of great sorrow and particularly when we consider our lives and the lives of others in the face of death. What happens if a loved one dies? If your father or mother passes away? Or a child? Or just a friend that you love dearly? What happens to you? How does what is going on inside your heart manifest itself outwardly as you mourn? Well, isn't someone who is mourning for someone that they loved who has passed away, isn't someone like that showing a lack of care for personal appearance? Do you really expect someone who is mourning to be well-dressed, to be even washed, to have taken a shower that morning, to have cared to put on their makeup? No. You understand that what is going on in that person's heart is so significant that they don't care what they look like. They'll wear the daggiest clothes and they won't even bother to have a wash. And if someone is grieving, isn't there also a lack of concern for food? They feel sick. They, their appetite is completely gone. They don't care about food. Particularly when you consider how much time is taken up with preparing food. You have to plan the meal, you have to go and purchase the, 
the food, you have to prepare it itself, and then you have to eat the food, and then you have to clear up the food. Someone who is mourning, they can't be bothered doing all those things. And so they'd much rather go without food altogether. And they don't even feel like it. They feel sick in their stomach. And so they're naturally fasting as they grieve for the person that they've lost. And if someone is grieving, isn't there a crying out for help in that time as well? Someone may be Mr. Independent and doesn't need the help of anyone, doesn't need his family around him most of the time. But when someone significant is lost to them, suddenly they need help. They're no longer Mr. Independent. They need their family around them. They need people to talk to. They just need a shoulder to cry on. And then if someone is grieving, isn't there a weeping and a mourning? Shouldn't we expect to see that? If someone is really upset about someone, it's natural to see that their face is not bright and chirpy, that there's no smile on their face, that they're crying and that they're sad all the time. And so the same thing should really happen when someone is repentant, when someone is repentant over their sin. Why? Because if we are repentant of our sin, well, then we must have been confronted with the subject of death. If we are repentant of sin, we must have been confronted with the subject of death. The person who understands sin understands death, understands the consequences of sin, because we understand the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. What death does sin bring? Well, sin brings physical death. After all, that's the death that the Israelites are really worried about here in the book of Joel. As plague of locusts have come and eaten everything, they're confronted with physical death. How? From starvation. They won't be able to eat, which means they will die. And even here in the text, there's also a fire mentioned. Not a lot of detail is given about it, whether it was started to try and destroy some of the the locusts, and then it's gotten out of hand, or whether some sort of uh, wildfire had started because of a lightning strike or something like that. But we see in verse 19, To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the open pastures, and flames have burned up all the trees of the field. The Israelites were confronted with death here in Israel, not just by the plague of locusts, but also by a fire. A physical death had come. And so they were mourning over the physical death that was to come to them because of their sin. And it wasn't just the death to humans. There's also this death that's coming to plants, of course, by the locusts eating them and by the fire coming through. But we also see the animals are dying. They're suffering. We read in chapter 1, verse 19, To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the open pastures and flames have burned up all the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up and fire has devoured the open pastures. If you go back a few verses, you can see that even the domestic animals, the sheep, are suffering because of the sin of Israel and the consequences of physical death. But sin doesn't just bring physical death. Sin also brings what other death? It brings spiritual death. It brings spiritual death. We read in the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. What's spiritual death? It's the death of a relationship with God. Death of our relationship with God. That we no longer are alive to God. We're dead to him and dead to spiritual matters because of our sin. But it's not just physical and spiritual death that sin brings, but it also brings eternal death. What death am I speaking about? The death in hell, the second death that the Bible describes. 
this is the great, terrible day of the Lord that is to come, where people will be judged and then cast into hell as a consequence of their sin. It's hinted at in this passage. The day of the Lord is a theme that is throughout the Old Testament and then carries over into the New Testament. We see the day of the Lord in one sense is being fulfilled with the plague of locusts and the, the fire that is rushing through the land, but there's also a distant prophecy being given there as well. We always see that with the prophets in the Old Testament, that there's a, a present fulfilment, but there's also a future fulfilment. The way that the description of the locusts here is so gripping that you think, could it really be fulfilled in this time? And there's a sense where it is pointing to the future fulfilment, the great and terrible day of the Lord. Yes, this is the day of the Lord that has come to Israel, but there's an even greater and more terrible day of the Lord that is to come. And that is described for us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Now that sounds very much like what is being described there in the prophet Joel, but this is even a greatest extent. This is the whole world, not just the land of Israel. Fire will sweep through and destroy everything. And this is as a consequence of sin, the eternal death that is to come. And it's not just physical, spiritual and eternal death that is brought by sin. But there's another death that is brought by sin. And what is that death? Well, it's the death of the Son of God. We learn in the New Testament that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. How horrible is sin? How horrible is sin? Well, it required the death of the Son of God in order to save man. That's how awful our sin is. If you want to see how awful sin is, then look at the cross of Jesus Christ. See the Son of God stripped, beaten, and nailed to a cross and suffering immensely. That's how awful sin is. That's the kind of death that sin brings. So as we see our sin, and as we see death that comes from sin, shouldn't there be a grieving? Shouldn't there be a grieving, a mourning over sin as we repent of that sin? Shouldn't we see the outward signs of grief as described in Joel here? as we see that sin equals our physical, our spiritual, our eternal death. What signs? Well, we saw them before. A lack of concern for clothing and cleanliness. As we look at our sin and see the death that it brings, shouldn't there be a lack of concern about clothing that day? And for cleanliness, shouldn't there also be a lack of concern for food? Shouldn't it be natural that your body doesn't want to eat as it's facing sin and the consequences of our sin? As we think about our sin and what we've done, shouldn't there be a sickness there and you're not interested in food as a result? What else? Shouldn't there be a crying out for help? Crying out to help for God? That a physical appearance is discarded, physical food is discarded, and I'm just concentrating on crying out to God for help because I feel a great need that I can't solve myself. And shouldn't there be a weeping, a mourning over our sin, a tear coming to our eyes as we consider the grievous nature of our sin and the consequences of our sin? Shouldn't there be an impossibility of smiling as we think about our sin? Well, we see such responses here in the Bible, don't we? And shouldn't we then see it in us too? We see it here in Joel as he's commanding the Israelites to do so. And then in a book like Jonah, we see it with the Ninevites. 
We see it with the Ninevites. As they hear about the destruction that is to come upon their city, what do they do? Well, they repent. And they repent with outward signs. They repent by not caring about their clothing. Well, they do care, but they care to show that they're not concerned about being well-dressed and being clean. They repent in sackcloth and ashes. And there's a weeping and a mourning and a fasting and a crying out to God for help. You want something to do this afternoon? Read through the end of Jonah. Chapter 3 and chapter 4, and look at the response of the Ninevites. And so you who claim this morning to sit here as someone who is repentant of your sin, have you ever experienced anything like this? Anything like this that's described here in Joel? Have you seen a lack of care for appearance in your life as you've been confronted with your sin? Have you seen a lack of concern for food? That it was natural for you to fast when you were concerned about the sin in your life and the consequences of your sin? Have you seen a crying out for help, that you're no longer Mr. Independent, but instead you need help? And have you seen yourself weep and mourn over your sin? If you have, then you have the signs of true repentance, as described here in Joel chapter 1 and 2. Now, we have to be careful here, though, because people can sorrow outwardly but not be sorrowing inwardly. People can express sorrow on their face, but inwardly they're not sorrowing at all. We see in examples like this in the Bible with Esau, where we read in Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, it says, See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. He was one who weeped over the consequences of his sin, that he lost his blessing. But he could bring about no change of mind. And Judas is another example who betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in Matthew 27, verse 3, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned... He was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Here was someone who was seized with remorse as well. But he was not truly repentant. Instead, he went away and tried to end the pain by hanging himself. Just because we stop washing and eating and start crying out and weeping doesn't mean we are repentant. After all, don't many people go to funerals with a sad face, but inwardly they're indifferent to what's going on. Or they may actually be rejoicing in their heart for the death of the person that they've gone to the funeral for. So what is true repentance? How can we know if we have true repentance? If the outward signs can display true repentance, but we can actually display those without a true repentance, what's true repentance? Well, the prophet Joel tells us it's a rending of the heart that then can overflow to an outward appearance. And we see this in verse 12 and 13 of chapter 2. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 12. It says... Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. 
That is true repentance, to rend your heart and not your garments. It's one thing to tear your clothes. Anyone can do that. But to rend your heart, to do that inward work of tearing your heart, that is, what true, the true, that is the true repentance that God is looking for. And why is this all important? Why are we spending so much time this morning looking at the subject of repentance? Why do we want to know if we have true repentance? Why would it be important to look at these outward signs that we see here in Joel chapter 1 and 2? and in the book of Jonah, and in other parts of Scripture. Why is it important? Because if we truly repent, if we truly repent, if we rend our hearts, with or without outward appearance, God forgives our sin. God forgives our sin. Repentance means a change of mind and a change of heart, stopping from sinning. And then that inward change, it often overflows to the outward, to physical manifestations on the outside of the body, the crying, the fasting, the lack of concern for clothing. And if that happens, that true repentance is there, then God forgives us our sins. And what does that then mean? God gives us life instead of death, instead of the death that we deserve for our sins. Why does God do that? Well... Joel tells us. Verse 13 says, Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. God is a just and righteous God, and he sends his judgment on those who do evil. But he's also gracious and compassionate and slow to anger, abounding in love. And therefore, those who return to him, those who truly repent, they experience life instead of death. How is that possible? Well, it's by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, where the spiritual death that we deserve for all eternity, the eternal death that we deserve, it dies in Christ Jesus at the cross. That's what we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Tremendous truth at the cross so many years ago that the death that we deserve for our sins was put upon Jesus Christ and it died in him in his death. So instead of us being spiritually death, dead, we can be spiritually alive even now. Instead of hell... We can have heaven. But has God proven this? That those who are truly repentant can have life? That Jesus has truly paid for their sins and their deathly consequences? Yes. How? Well, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If Jesus came back from the dead, he has shown that he has conquered death and the death that his people deserve. How else has God shown us that this is really true? It's by the Spirit the Holy Spirit, deposited as a guarantee in us now. He shows his indwelling by the love that we have for God and the love that we have for our neighbour. It's this wonderful truth that we are not spiritually dead anymore if we are truly repentant, that the Spirit has worked in us and is there now and gives us sign that we are alive now and no longer dead to God. So, through Christ's death, by repentance, the death we deserve is reversed and we are saved. This is why we must all urgently examine ourselves 
for true repentance, for true repentance, godly sorrow over our sin rather than earthly sorrow. We see this in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 where Paul says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. There's a type of sorrow that only brings death, but we need the godly sorrow that brings what? Repentance that leads to salvation. So my question for you this morning is, do you have true repentance? Do you have true repentance? As I preach here this morning, and Joel prophesies again, he has prophesied again as I've read his prophecy out this morning, does your heart mourn at sin and its deathly consequences? Or are you more interested in what you're wearing, or what you might wear tomorrow, or what somebody else is wearing around here? You're more concerned about physical appearance this morning. Or as I preach this morning, are you more concerned about what's for lunch? You're not feeling sick about sin. You're not feeling sick about the death that we deserve for our sin. Instead, you're more concerned about what you're going to be eating for lunch or maybe for dinner tonight. Do you feel no stirring in your heart to cry out to the Lord for forgiveness afresh as you think about the sin that you've committed over your lifetime and the death that you deserve for your sin? Is there nothing in you that would move you to tears because of your sin? If that is you, how can you mourn at the death of a loved one, but you can't mourn at the death of your own self? I'm sure you'd mourn if a loved one was to die today in your life, but you won't mourn over your own death. May it not be. Cry out to God and ask him to grant you true repentance unto life, the repentance that brings life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Allow your body to follow your heart now as you're confronted with your sin and the deathly consequences of your sin. Allow you, your body to follow your heart and not care about anything, food, clothing, until you're right with God, until you know that God is your God again and you are following him. Because what will happen if you never mourn over your death, you never mourn over your sin, well, one day you will mourn. When will that be? It'll be the day you're cast into hell on the great and terrible day of the Lord. Then you will mourn, but there'll be no repentance then. But if we do see true repentance in your life, as you've looked at Joel chapter 1 and 2 here this morning, and you've looked at your sin in your life and the consequences for your sin, and you've recognised that you deserve to die for eternity because of your sin, but you've also seen outward manifestation. You've seen a lack of concern in your life for clothing and for food as you've considered your sin. You've, you've even experienced what it is to weep over your sin. And you've felt that rending of heart so that you cry out to God for help, that you need help. This is a problem you cannot solve on your own. Then what should we do? Those of us in this room have seen true repentance in our lives. Well, we should take heart and rejoice that we have life from Christ's death by the repentance through the Holy Spirit. It's this wonderful thing that repentance is like a channel by which God's life comes down into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we should not stay sad. We should not stay sad, those of us who are truly repentant. Why? Because if we've turned from our sin, 
what have we turned to? When we turn from sin, we don't turn 90 degrees and stop there. No, we turn 180 degrees. And what do we turn to? We turn to the God who is compassionate and loving and kind and slow to anger. And as we look at his face, what should happen? The sadness that we felt as we looked at our sin turns to joy and to happiness because we are no longer deserving of death because of our sin, but instead we have eternal life through Christ our Lord. The unrepentant, they show that they're not repentant. How? By not sorrowing over their sin. But the unrepentant can also show that they're not repentant. Why? Because they're not rejoicing over the Lord's forgiveness. I mean, you see that with someone like Judas. He's, he's upset, but he doesn't have a smile on his face as he looks to God. Because why? He's not repentant. He hasn't turned. He may have turned partly from his sin, but he hasn't turned to God. And so if we claim to be repentant, yes, there's a sorrowing in our hearts as we look at our sin, but there should also be a rejoicing. There's a sorrow, but there's a rejoicing that is mixed in with the sorrowing. Why? Because we are forgiven. We have spiritual life and will never taste the second death. And we have God himself now and forevermore. And so there's a joy mixed in with the sorrowing. The famous pastor Robert Murray McChain from last century, a well, century before now, and he said, his famous quote, for every look we take at our sinful selves, we should take ten looks at Christ. And so if we are Christians, I dare say we should be predominantly happy, rejoicing, rejoicing always, even as we sorrow about our sin, even as today, I'm sure there'll be a point where you go, I shouldn't have done that. And they feel a sorrow of heart. Maybe even a tear comes to your eye. But as you look at your sin, you should then turn. Because that's what repentance is. Turn and look to God. And then rejoicing should fill your heart as you know yet again God has forgiven you because he is a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity as we deserve. Let's come to him in prayer now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the God of justice, but also the God of grace. Lord, we come before you and we confess that we have sinned and we rightly deserve to be punished with spiritual death, physical death and eternal death. But we thank you for sending your son to die the death that we deserve for our sins. And so we who repent are forgiven and have life instead of death. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to live lives of repentance by the power of the Spirit, to continue to repent of our sin day by day as we see it, but also to rejoice day by day in the life that you have given. And, Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who has never repented of their sins, who does not have true repentance, oh, Lord, we pray that they would forget about a personal appearance, they'd forget about food, they'd forget about all things, as they cry out to you with weeping and mourning over their sin until they find forgiveness in Christ Jesus. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.